somewhere this morning that our scripture is going to be found today uh, primarily in Matthew 26, and I would advise you to kind of find that if you're going to follow along, because I'm going to jump into it very, very soon here. Uh, so traditionally, if we were traditionalists, uh, we would call this Palm Sunday, as a lot of people are calling it, or here in Maine, it's Pam Sunday, but uh, whichever, whichever you choose. Um, but usually, if people go to church on Palm Sunday, uh, they would expect to hear a sermon about Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and what a triumphal entry, momentarily, it was uh, in, on that day. Today I'm breaking with custom altogether. I know you find it hard to believe. And I'm going to unpack something that occurred later in that same week. And it occurred at the Garden of Gethsemane. So I'm going to start to read in verse uh, 33 of Matthew 26. So follow along in your Bible or on your app or whatever device that you have chosen to use, and uh, there'll be spots here where maybe we could even read together. The first is a very short discourse between Jesus and Peter, and uh, I want you to hear this, and I want this to kind of sink in before I move into the rest of the story. Peter replied to Jesus, even if all fail away or fall away on account of you, what did he say? I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Three is an important number. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, who? I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Hmm, interesting. Now I'm going to jump into verse 36 and read several verses, if I may. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Hmm. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, sleepy bunch, weren't they? Because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. A message this morning that that kind of resonates with me because I've been thinking about this whole story a lot lately and in terms I'd never have before. And all I could come up with was this as the title, I hope you'll stay with me, Questions at Gethsemane. So the scripture that we read starts in part at verse 36 and it begins with these words, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. If you read this account in Luke's gospel, chapter 22 and verse 39, it would tell us uh, much the same, but it puts it this way. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. I wonder if we could pause right now and just ask the Lord to bless this word 
this wonderful word of his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the power of this word. And we know, Lord, today that as your Holy Spirit opens and enlightens and leads us, Lord, you will lead us into great treasure. You will show us great things, and you will do much in the way of great work in our lives. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus uh, this morning, we ask that every heart be attentive, every mind be open, every spirit be touched, and that you would have your way and your will in these, our lives, and we'll be careful to give you the praise in Jesus' name. And the church said, Being in the Garden of Gethsemane was not something unusual for Jesus. Now, I want to start with that. I want to just set the stage here for you. Evidently, whenever he was in Jerusalem, or most times, he usually went to pray. And when he went to pray, he went to this spot in Gethsemane. So when Judas was hunting for Jesus late that night to betray him, he knew just where to go. He knew where to find him. He knew what he'd be doing. Jesus had gone, Luke says, as usual, to the Garden of Gethsemane, for one reason, to pray. Now, it's interesting, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. You wonder why they called it the Mount of Olives, because on that mountain they grew olives. Still do. The garden still exists today. Includes a number of olive trees, probably date back to the time of Jesus. Gethsemane itself, the word, the name, comes from two Aramaic words that were then brought into the Greek and then down to us in English. And originally the name meant oil press or olive oil press. And it could have originally been an area that was designated for the pressing of olive oil. You know, in a sense... And those of you who like history need to hear me very carefully now. The two greatest battles of history were both fought in gardens. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam chose to disobey God, and he brought sin and shame to the human race. He did not resist temptation, but he chose his will over the Father's will. I have some questions, and as I said earlier, this is about questions that arise to me, and I hope you'll think about them too, uh, at Gethsemane. I want to ask this question. I'm not going to take time for responses, but I want to get the, the, the juice flowing. I want you to be thinking about these things. I want to ask first, have you, how have uh, friends that you've had or have ever helped you get through difficult times in your life? Have you had that? If you have, you're very fortunate. How do you think God wants you to respond to experiences that come into your life that you just term overwhelming? And what role could or did or does prayer play in those times of crisis or trial? And in what areas do you say to God or do you ever feel like you need to say to God, God, Heavenly Father, not my will, but yours be done. Those are easy words to say, but not so easy to apply. By the way, on praying for God's will, a lot of people are having problem with this and they can't quite decide what... Listen, if it's good for Jesus, it's good for me. And praying for God's will is not a cop-out. I repeat, it is not a cop-out. Let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. The first Adam battled in the Garden of Eden. The last Adam, whom we know as Jesus Christ, chose the Father's will over his own will, over human will. The pain, the spiritual misery of the cross awaited him. It seems as though the internal battle was fought right there in the Garden. Just as Adam's decision in Eden affected all who are related to Adam, so that's all of us, So Christ's decision in Gethsemane affects all who are related to him by faith. Jesus, as both God and man, had a a sinless human nature and a divine nature. He had a human will and a divine will that worked in harmony. So in Gethsemane, we get the clearest picture of how he submitted his human will to the will of his heavenly Father. Now, let me read for you John chapter 18, 
and uh, verse and verse one. Um, and I don't. I think I have it on the screen as a uh, as a reference. Here's how John. Uh, here's what John says next. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, and he crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden. So now this is bringing him into Gethsemane. And he and his disciples went into it. So what I want to do this morning to help you understand the significance of Gethsemane experience is I want to trace the steps of Jesus from the upper room to the garden of Gethsemane. And we have a a little diagram. Hopefully you can get an idea from this. There's the upper room. I'll stand aside. That's where they were. That's where he met with the disciples. That's where he prayed. That's where he prophesied his, his, uh, his death and, and, and what was coming up. And they came down to the Kidron uh, Brook and they crossed it. This area is known, was known and is known as the Kidron Valley. And then they went up a ways, actually it was down, to the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, that's the Mount of Olives area. And I'm not going to retrace it, but if you look at those arrows, that's the last 24 hours before the crucifixion. That's how much they moved around and where they took Jesus and how he ended up at Golgotha or Calvary's Mountain and so on. Now, to get to where he needed to be, Gethsemane, Jesus would have crossed the Kidron Brook, which flows in the valley between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. Very, very narrow creek or crick, depending on what part of the country you live in, that one could easily step over. Matter of fact, the name Kidron means dark and gloomy. Hmm. Can I tell you a little bit of history? That's very significant to what I'm preaching this morning. A thousand years before this happened, King David crossed the Kidron Brook after being betrayed by his own son, Absalom. David, the shepherd who became a king, crossed the Kidron with a heavy heart because of betrayal. And on this particular night, Jesus, the king, who was also a shepherd, crossed it with a heavy heart too because he was being betrayed as well. It's also interesting to note that the Jews never drank from the water of the Kidron Brook because it carried sewage from the upper city. And in addition, a trench had been dug from the Temple Mount so the excess blood from animal sacrifices could flow down into the stream. I'm painting a beautiful picture for you this morning. And the historian Josephus wrote that the brook Kidron often ran red with the blood of sacrifices. We know there was a full moon that night. You say, how do you know? Because Passover is always marked by a full moon. If you don't believe it, check your calendar coming up this week. And and if it's one that has the moon phases on it, you'll see what I'm saying is true. Passover begins at the end of this week. By now, it's completely dark. I can imagine as Jesus stepped over this river of blood, he probably saw the moon reflected on its dark surface. And I wonder if he paused for a second to consider that in less than 12 hours, his blood would be running down the slopes of Moriah toward this brook. Those four hours in the Garden of Gethsemane were some of the most stress-filled moments in the earthly life of Jesus. Not only should we not pass over this, not only should we take this lightly, not only should we just go on not knowing much about the Gethsemane experience, but we ought to take this experience extremely as extremely, extremely important. Uh, I'm not going to read it for you, but I'm going to refer for you that if you like reading this, and I hope you will, and you'll do a little homework on your uh, own, another uh, real good uh, account of this is found in Mark chapter 14. Begin at verse 32 and read right through to verse 42. And you'll, uh, you'll, you'll hear some of the same words that we've been saying, but you'll hear it again. So then you will have heard from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know precisely where the, then where you saw the map, where the Garden of Gethsemane is located even yet today. The, uh, by the way, the Mount of Olives hasn't moved, and olive trees don't grow taller, they grow wider, and they grow new roots, and they grow new shoots, and they just spread out. 
and massive ancient olive trees grow in this garden today that where the, the, just where they grew that, or were growing the night Jesus prayed. The church of all nations has been built over the very spot where it is believed that Jesus prayed. And there's a rough rock ledge about 10 by 10 that is called the Rock of Agony. I want to invite you to just forget everything else and drop your own agenda for a few minutes this morning. I want to invite you to join me in that garden on that night that Jesus prayed. And I want you to consider with me, no more, just this many, three different emotions which Jesus faced. And here's why. Because they're the exact same emotions that we face. Emotion number one was he agonized. Need I tell you, if you know the end of this story, he agonized the night before the cross. I want to stand and be honest with you this morning and admit that I think I've heard the word and I've heard the story about Gethsemane. I was going to say nearly all my life, but for many, many, many years. But it's only been in the recent time that I've learned the meaning of Gethsemane and I've been bursting at the seams ready to share this with you and I hope somebody gets something of its importance and significance, not just in general terms, but in their individual life. Gethsemane is sort of a parable of what Jesus endured. Now the olive tree is called the tree of life because it provides oil for light, for medicine, for food, and for soap. And so to harvest olives, claws were spread under the branches, and then the harvesters took heavy sticks and they beat the branches to make the olives fall onto the claws. I have to stop there and tell you, when I read that, it reminded me that Jesus was beaten with wooden sticks by both the Jewish guard and the Roman soldiers. The word Gethsemane, as I alluded to earlier, means olive oil press. Let me explain that. The olives, when gathered, were placed in a stone press, and a huge millstone crushed them into pulp. That first olive oil was called extra virgin olive oil, and it is absolutely clear but then the olive pulp was put into cloth bags and it endured two more crushings uh, using long presses weighted down with stones and sometimes a huge press that was driven by a wooden screw uh, twisted, uh, and, and twisted tight. The olives are crushed three times until no oil remains in the pulp. Listen to this. The final crushing of the olive pulp, the olive pulp produces a thick, dark oil, and some say it resembles blood. Three crushings. And Jesus prayed three times in the garden where olives were crushed. In Luke's account, remember Luke was a physician. We read these words, Luke 22, 44. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Dr. Luke used here, if you went back to the original language, a medical word that I guess is still in use, the word thrombosis. The literal translation is blood mixed with sweat. Jesus was under such agonizing pressure, his scalp began to ooze bloody sweat. And by the way, not in defense of anything, just a scientific fact, this condition is not unique to this story. I read a medical expert, Dr. David Taraska, who said this, and I quote him, of medical significance is that Luke mentions him as having sweat like blood. The medical term for this is, I may say it wrong, but hematidrosis. It has been in, seen in patients who have experienced extreme stress or extreme shock to their system. 
the capillaries around the sweat pores become fragile and they leak blood into the sweat. If you know history, you know that perhaps, I don't think there's any perhaps to it, the most hated king in all of French history was Charles IX. Being an astute Catholic, he, as soon as he ascended the throne, he ordered the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, in which ten, over 10,000 French Protestants were killed. The stress from the guilt, from his guilt of doing that, drove him insane. He died at age 23 from hematidrosis. Blood began to seep through his pores, and he died in awful agony. This condition is rare, but doctors tell us that most people who ever experience it die of it. That's how close Jesus is. That's how close to death he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talk about agony. We talk about pain. We talk about human suffering. Hear me. That's as close as you're going to get without actually dying. And that's exactly what Jesus experienced. The second emotion that he, that he, that he went through was he recoiled. He recoiled at the cup that he faced. He left the disciples and he fell on his face, the Bible says. And he prayed this amazing prayer. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Now, Abba, or Abba, was the most affectionate term that a Jewish child, they still use it, ever used when speaking to their father. It meant like you and I would say, Daddy or Papa. Jesus said, Daddy, Papa, you can do anything. I'm asking you to take this cup from me. I want to explain what the phrase to take or to drink a cup meant to experience. It meant to experience something. It meant to go through something. And Jesus is saying, take this cup from me. This is something I would rather not go through. And that's exactly what he's thinking and saying. Earlier, Jesus had asked James and John, the sons of Zebedee, if they were able to drink of the cup that he was going to drink. He wasn't talking about drinking out of a real cup. This had nothing to do with the Last Supper. He was referring to the experience of suffering and death and anguish. So the night before the cross, Jesus peers into this cup, and what he saw caused his blood to freeze. The contents of this cup caused the Son of God to recoil in horror. So what did Jesus see in this horrible cup? First he saw a cup of isolation. He saw the emotional pain in that cup. He knew he was going to die alone. All alone. When you read the New Testament, you discover Jesus loved being around people. In Luke 7, 34, Jesus complained that the Pharisees criticized John the Baptist for not drinking and, being, and he was being a recluse, and they said he had a demon, and that Jesus came on the scene, and he came on, as the Bible says, eating and drinking, and the Pharisees labeled him a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Whatever their claim, whether their claim was true or not, we know that Jesus loved to spend time with people. And whenever you see him, and wherever he's in ministry, and whenever he's walking around, there, there are people with him. The Bible says the common people heard him gladly. I love that. I'd like to preach on that sometime. And you may fool, uh, and the reason I think about this is you may fool adults, but you can't fool common people. You can't fool children. And let me remind you, children flocked to Jesus, and he took them in his arms and he blessed them. And it was so tender and it was so caring. But the closer he got to the cross, are you still with me? Are you in that garden with me now? Are you walking this path with Jesus? Because we are there. Can I interject? If you and I are not there, Jesus is not there. There's no need. The closer he got to the cross, the more alone he found himself. 
Early in his ministry, hundreds of people gathered to hear him and to witness what he was doing. Thousands of people followed him. In one scene, he fed 5,000 people, 10,000 people, 15,000 people, add them up. Another time it says 4,000, which was probably 12,000. And he began to talk about the demands of discipleship and the crowd started leaving him like rats leaving a sinking ship. It happens in local churches too. And this night he's down to 12. And then one left to betray him. And he's down to 11. And when the mob arrived, all of them turned and ran away. He is totally alone. No matter what people say, nobody likes to be totally alone all the time. I know there are a lot of people that that, that deal with the pain of loneliness. I know there are a lot of people that spend a lot of time at home, maybe maybe not at home, maybe somewhere else, but the only company they might have would be a pet or a computer or a, that's a great company, or a television. No, I know, we laugh, it's very sad that people... With that that many people on the globe, and we still have people that are so alone, they can hardly stand it. Friend, if you feel alone, can I tell you that Jesus knows your pain of isolation? You say, how so? Here's how so. So much that even God the Father forsook him when he was on the cross. See, you've never had a moment in your life when God wasn't near you. You may not have been aware of it. You've never had to cry out and say, God, wherever you are, if you exist. People do pray that. I don't know why. If you're praying out to God, then you're questioning whether he exists, and that doesn't really make sense. That pain of isolation is real. The second thing he saw in the cup was the It was a cup of physical pain. Now, Jesus was 100% God, yes, but he was 100% human as well. And as a man, he experienced physical pain just like we do. He actually had nerves running through his body. And as he looked into that cup, his humanity shuddered at the thought of the physical pain he was about to face. He knew rough hands were going to grab him and twist his arms behind his back. He knew he'd be beaten and spit upon and his beard would be plucked from his face. He knew a crown of long, hard thorns would be crushed down upon his head. He realized that brutal soldiers would mock him and make sport of their torture of him. Oh, he foresaw that his back would be bared and his hands would be lashed above his head to a whipping post. He could already hear the whistle from the cat nine tails whipping through the air over and over and over again, thudding and tearing into his back. He knew nails the size of modern-day railroad spikes would be driven into his hands and feet and a spear would puncture his side. He saw all that and he said, Please, Papa, take it away. If you've never ever had a real major surgery, first off, thank God for that, But you've probably talked to people who have, and I have, and many people I've talked to tell me that the worst part of the major surgery was waiting for it. It is the dread that is often worse than the experience itself. Can you, I don't think we can, but let's try, imagine the dread that Jesus experienced that night in Gethsemane. What did he see in that cup? He saw isolation. He saw physical pain. And he saw a cup of sinful shame. The isolation and the physical pain were pretty terrifying. But I don't believe either of those came close to the dread he experienced on the spiritual level. Remember, 
Jesus was holy God in the flesh. He was perfectly sinless. He had never had a sinful thought. He had never committed a sinful deed. But in that cup, he saw the sins of all of humanity, and his holiness recoiled at the thought of drinking in all that shame and all that disgrace. Can you remember a time, please don't respond, but can you remember a time in your, in your own mind, just, just think of it, when you did something really rotten, something you were immediately ashamed of. I don't want you to dredge up anything from the past or talk about that deed. All I want you to, re- to remind you of is the shame and disgrace that we feel after something like that. I, I just want us to remember that feeling of that, I call it filthy guilt. Oh, can I tell you, my friend, Jesus never felt that feeling, ever. But on the cross, he took in his own body all the sins of the world. And I know most of you fairly well, and I know you're pretty good people. But just think of the vilest criminals who live or have lived. Consider the abusers and the rapists and the serial murderers and all of those people that have put maybe hundreds, thousands, or millions of people to death for no cause. Just think of that. And in the cup was all that disgusting, sickening shame of every wicked act. Theirs, mine, yours. And the Bible doesn't just say, Jesus took our sins. We've preached that, and we've taught it way too long, and we've taught it wrong. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't just take our sins and say, here, I'll take that and deal with it. He became our sin. He didn't just drink this cup. He spoke to James and John. He says, could you be baptized with the same baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? He wasn't talking about water baptism. He wasn't talking about that at all. He wasn't talking about the baptism of physical suffering. At the cross, Jesus was immersed into the entire sin of the entire world. Mm. This is heavy stuff, and I know if you're, if you're struggling with it, I understand. Try to stay with me. As soon as I get over this next little part, it might get better, probably get worse. Imagine you're standing in front of a vile-smelling vat, a huge vat, as far as you can see, of warm, thick liquid with a very foul stench. The fluid in the vat has been infected with everything that could infect it. And I'm not going to list my list. I'm not going to share the things I wrote down. So I don't want anybody to be sick. I'll just say it ended with human flesh and raw sewage. Now imagine yourself being submerged in that vat. Drinking it, tasting it, and smelling it. And it's now in your mouth, it's in your nose, it's in your eyes, your ears. You're getting sick, aren't you? Okay, that's fine. Listen, This is where I want to be. This is exactly where I want to be. And I don't apologize because I said we have not understood Gethsemane before. And I want us to understand it. It will illuminate Easter for you if you'll just stay with me. This is exactly where I want to be. You say, well, this is making me sick, even the thought, even that picture you're, you're painting right now, Bob. Okay, now here, here's my next comment. Now take that picture and multiply your, re, your revulsion by a factor of as many billion people as ever lived or will live in this world. Woo. And you may come close, close 
to understand what it was like for the sinless Son of God to be submerged into the filth and the shame and the awfulness of our sin. I think sometimes we gloss over this and we don't give it its due and we don't really realize it's easy to say the words, read the scriptures, sing the songs, but we don't really internalize personally. Now can you understand why Jesus revolted in horror when he looked into that cup? You say, oh, I know. how." But, but here's the key. He still chose to go to the cross for us. And the third emotion that I want to share with you that Jesus shared, is that he found peace, how? By surrendering to God. Just as the olives were crushed three times, Jesus returned to pray the same prayer three times, and each time he begged God, saying, Abba, Father, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's the important thing here. That's the turning point. That's what changed everything. And that's what changed eternity for you and for me. He said, Father, you know what I want. My desire is to take this cup and let's throw it away. I want to avoid the loneliness, the pain, the disgrace, the shame. But Father, I cherish your will more than mine, so I'll do what you wish. Besides adding the detail about his sweat falling like drops of blood, Dr. Luke also wrote this in uh, Luke 22:43. He said, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now, there's a famous, uh, there's a famous painting by the Danish artist Karl Bloch that pictures this moment. I don't know what the angel said or did. I know he gave Jesus strength. Maybe he said, your father loves you, and you don't understand how much, but he loves you with an everlasting love, and this is why he sent you here, and you're doing the, his bidding, and this is the job he wants you to get done. Or maybe he said, don't worry, Lord. If you decide you need me, there are 12 legions of us who will come to your side instantly the moment you call. All we know is when Jesus returned the third time, he had found peace. He wasn't contentious with the disciples anymore. His head was held high. There was fire in his eyes. It was as if he was saying, go ahead, devil, hit me with your best shot. Give me the best one you've got. Let's look at, for just a moment, the arrest. And again, I'm going to leave with you the scriptural account there. John 18, 4 to 12. I don't know if I have it on the screen or not, so in case I don't, you make sure you write it down. John 18, 4 to 12. And by the way, when you read that, it prompts some more questions. I think of Judas. I just want to spend a minute on him. What makes a person betray a cause he had once embraced? You ever thought of that? Uh, Jesus shows concern for his disciples because when, the, when the, uh, the guards came looking for him and ready to arrest him, he said, well, who is it you want? <laughs> he knew Jesus of Nazareth. And then he said these immortal words. He said, I am he. And the word he is not in the original. I am. Didn't God say to Abraham, I am? And I am will be with you always? Lord, uh, one of the disciples said, shall we strike them with our swords? And then I asked myself this question. If you, it's okay to be inquisitive and ask questions when you're reading something that you're familiar with. I asked myself the question, why did the disciples have swords? They didn't carry swords around. They weren't armed. And all of a sudden that night after midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane, they have swords. I'll tell you what, they knew something was up. And they knew somebody was in danger. They didn't know what. And Simon Peter didn't even wait for Jesus to answer. He just struck the ear of the high priest's servant, and off came the ear, and off on it went, uh, on, back on it went when Jesus healed it. He said, put your sword away. I can call 12 legions. Do you know how many figures are in a legion? 6,000. So Jesus said, I can call 72,000 angels with a snap of a finger. I don't think I need your sword. Here's the point. 
He, he, and Jesus asked, he said, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, the follow-through, this is the thing, the follow-through here. The decision of all that's going to happen was made in Gethsemane. It wasn't made in, in Pilate's courtyard. It wasn't made on the way to Golgotha. It wasn't made on the cross. The decision was already made in Gethsemane. You and I were starting to see freedom and victory and liberty and eternal salvation in the Garden of Gethsemane. The fight had been won in Gethsemane and the temptation to call the whole thing off was now lesson. Not one more time did he say, Father, let this cup pass from me. That was the crushing Gethsemane experience of Jesus. I want to ask this morning before we leave, what is your Gethsemane today? Is it your health? Is it your job? Is it your marriage? Is it a temptation that you wrestle with? You just name it yourself. Talk to yourself about this. What crushing challenge are you facing? Whatever shape or form your Gethsemane may take, what are you going to do when you face that crushing experience? I encourage you to do exactly what Jesus did. First, he prayed. And that's what we should do, ASAP. You know, a lot of us think ASAP means, what's it mean? As soon as possible. It means always stop and pray. Prayer should not be your last resort. It should be your first report. I hear people are going through trials and real trouble sometimes. Ask them how they're doing with that. And they say, well, you know, I think the only thing now is I just, I'm going to have to pray. I think that's about the only thing left now should be the first resort, not the last, my friend. The second thing you ought to do like Jesus did is surrender your will to God. See, we have this idea that if God could just change our circumstances, everything would be okay. And when we pray, God, take this cup from me, what we mean is, Lord, get me out of this mess. You may be asking God today to change your circumstances. What do you know what he wants to do? He wants to change you. (laughs) You may be asking God to fix your problem today. You know what God wants to do? He wants to fix you. So be, be like Jesus and do not hesitate to ask God for what you want, but you must always add, not my will, but yours be done. On the first pages of the Bible, you read about the Garden of Eden. God put two people in there, and he shared his will with them. And Eve and the first Adam asserted their own will over God's will. It led to the ruin of humanity. They said to God, we know your will is not to eat certain fruit, but it's what we really want to do. And then the third thing you ought to do is trust God's perfect plan. You know, God has a plan for Jesus. He did have a plan for Jesus. The Bible says he's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So there was nothing new here as far as God was concerned. The cross was always the plan of God. It was scary and intimidating to Jesus, so he hesitated. I understand that. But he decided to trust his Father's plan. Now, not only did God have a plan for Jesus, God has a plan for you too. And after praying the third time, Jesus returned and said, Rise, let us go. I heard someone say one time, there are two ways to spell fear, F-E-A-R. You can spell it, forget everything and run. That's what a lot of people do, most people, even Christians today. They forget everything and run. But Jesus spells fear, F-E-A-R, a different way. He spells it, face everything and rise. I like that better. Where are you right now? Are you ready to forget everything and run? Or are you trusting God and you're ready to face everything and rise? What about you? Have you appreciated what God has done for you? How should you appreciate? How should you respond when I ask you that question? How should you respond? And have you responded that way? I mean, you're never going to be called on to bear the sin of the world. Neither am I, and I'm glad of that, aren't you? But you may be called on to suffer for him or to make some tough decisions. Don't compromise God's plan. 
You accept the reality, too, that God's will for you is not all roses? Sometimes God wants you to be on the hot seat. These are serious questions for serious consideration. Do you accept the reality that God is still in control? Is this the God you worship or have you created a false God according to your own preferences? You know, if that awful night in Gethsemane or even the excruciating anguish of the cross of Calvary was where matters ended. That would be unbelievably tragic. But, always remember, with God, after loss, gain. After endurance, reward. After death, life. After crucifixion, resurrection, and after tribulation, thank God, the glorious millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, I know we're at Gethsemane. I know in this biblical time that we put ourselves in this morning for a little bit. It's almost Friday. Matter of fact, by the end of the story, it is getting into that day. And yes, it's Friday, but listen here. Oh, Sunday's coming. It may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. I've got more of my message, and I want you to hear it, and I want you to share it. So I'm going to ask you something I don't usually do, but I'm going to ask you to please hold your places Please, 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 on purpose, because the rest of the sermon I don't want you to miss. It is crucial, because it is going to give for you the real motivating reason for all that happened in that garden of Gethsemane. Please, 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 just stay put and hear this personal message. Take it to your heart. I love you, and I'm asking you to show deference and respect to the rest of this message. God bless you. Of deep sorrow, your